0: we have MyQA ion and ion rt from iba for automated patient specific qa for photon electron and proton radiotherapy and we also have mr box from our ai suppliers at therapanacea allowing ai powered mr only workflows for a more consistent and high quality planning pathway for sgrt
1: Hi everyone. Before we get going with this podcast, we'd really like to highlight that the Radiotherapy UK Charities Annual Flash Workforce Survey is now open. The survey runs from the 29th of August to the 12th of September, so make sure you get your response in before it closes. Find the survey at www.radiotherapy.org.uk or type Radiotherapy UK into your socials. This is your opportunity as a member of the radiotherapy workforce to share your experiences of what is happening on the ground. Last year over 10% of the entire radiotherapy workforce from all disciplines responded and the key findings received national coverage from BBC Newslight, National Papers and Parliament.
2: A few of their key findings from last year included 84% of respondents said they do not have the workforce in place to meet current patient need. Eight in ten respondents felt that the current environment had caused them or a colleague to consider leaving the profession. Over a third said they didn't have the appropriate IT or technology infrastructure to support the delivery of most up-to-date techniques. So please take part, have your say, have your voice heard, go to www.radiotherapy.org.uk to find the survey. It only takes a few minutes and it will help raise awareness of the crucial need to invest in and improve radiotherapy services in the UK. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the multi Award-winning First Therapeutic Ragehog for Oncology podcast. So welcome to a bonus episode. My name is Norman Joe Cranson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara.
1: Hi everyone.
2: So we're very excited to share that this episode is part of a public engagement project funded by the Beacon Bursary Scheme at University College London. So we're incredibly lucky to be part of this project that has brought six adults who have had radiotherapy together with Radiation Researchers funded by Cancer Research UK, Radnet, City of London, to record special episodes of the podcast. For these episodes we'll give each young adult a chance to share their stories and also have important conversations about cancer research, along with patient involvement in research as well. So we'd like to introduce Jessie Tristan and Jamie Dean. Hi both, how are you?
3: Hello, yes, pretty good. Um, I've got, I'm off work today so that's very nice.
4: Hi there, yeah, I'm good too, looking forward to to being on your podcast. Jesse. do you want to quickly introduce yourself?
3: Yes, so hello, I'm Jesse Tristram, Um, and I guess my sort of go-to way to describe myself succinctly um, has, kind of borrows the words from my all-time favourite scan report, Um, I think Jamie, you've probably heard this before, but um, I'm a right-handed civil servant from East London, and apparently that kind of sums me up.
4: Jamie. Um, so hi, my name is Jamie Dean. I'm a junior group leader at UCL I'm funded by the Cancer Research UK um, Radnet City of London Centre and my team works on computational radiation, biology and oncology. Um, so we use um, computational and mathematical modelling approaches to try to understand um, cancer resistance to radiotherapy and try and develop new treatment strategies.
2: So Jesse, if you feel comfortable, would you mind sharing us a little bit about your cancer diagnosis and treatment pathway?
3: Absolutely. And uh, my right-handed civil servant description, it sounds far less cool than Jamie's, whatever all of those words were that you just said, but they're very impressive. <laughs> but the sort of, potted history of my cancer diagnosis because the sort of care pathway is a bit more of a care maze um, in my case Um, and I think in most people's cases Um, but it starts one morning in August 2021 and I woke up and I just felt really odd and by the end of the day, I was having 30-second déjà vu episodes accompanied by a rising nausea sensation and sensory hallucinations in my taste and smell. And I become overcome with fear. So for want of a kind of neat way to describe it, um, it was like déjà vu of the most awful experience of my life, but I knew it had never happened. Um mainly something just felt very very wrong and wrong enough that within 24 hours I went to the GP who confirmed that these deja vu episodes were a type of seizure a little known type of seizure called focal aware seizures although apparently according to Google the most common type of seizures in adults but who knows whether that's true Um, but the GP referred me for an MRI And one MRI quickly turned into two. And within 10 days of my first episode, I was told that they had found a lesion, um, which was a word that doesn't inspire much (laughs) sort of confidence, but also fear either. Um, So I was referred to the specialist hospital in my area. And a week later, I turned up to my follow up appointment to find that the wrong referral had been made. And I was given a number to call the right service who would be able to explain what they thought was, was wrong. So I, obviously I called it almost immediately, I think before I'd even left the hospital. <laughs> but no one picked up. And so it rang through to voicemail. And at the end of the voicemail, it was welcome to the brain tumour unit. <laughs> so that's how I found out that I had a brain tumour. And. Um, Although at that stage, once I'd been able to actually speak to the brain tumor unit, I was told that it was benign and that I would likely live with it just in my brain forever. <laughs> so skipping over nine weeks and several hospitalisation, where it's hospitalisations where it all becomes very hard to follow. <laughs> And a couple of fights for treatment with my neurosurgeon as it became obvious that my apparently benign brain tumour was growing incredibly quickly, even though they didn't want to sort of believe it. Again, my sort of another of my favourite quotes from my uh, kind of cancer pathway. Um, We wouldn't expect this to happen. Well, I don't know what you want me to say. It is happening. (laughs) But my pre-surgery MRI found that the tumour had quadrupled in size since my original MRI back in August. Um, So I had a nine hour brain surgery to remove this beast of a tumour, which was then sent for testing. And at the end of November 2021, I was diagnosed with the most aggressive incurable type of brain cancer, grade four glioblastoma. And obviously there is no good type of cancer and I certainly do not want to get into a game of cancer top trumps and there are a few statistics that I would like to reference to and that is not to say that glioblastoma is worse than the cancers that I compare it against but it's more a point of comparison to know what effective research can achieve um, because glioblastoma is really bad. <laughs> and. Still now, anyone who has heard of it winces when I tell them that I have it. And the reason why glioblastoma is so bad, or at least one of the reasons, is also the reason that I feel really excited and lucky to sort of be here to talk to you both and also to Jamie. Um, And so, you know, whilst in the UK cancer survival rates have doubled over the last 40 years, Survival rates for glioblastoma have stayed nearly stationary. And where the five year survival rate for breast cancer has risen to 85%, and for leukemia to 55%, and the 10 year survival rate for prostate cancer to 98%, they have also been accompanied by significant government investment in research since 2018. So for breast cancer, £150 million. And £130 million each for leukemia and prostate cancer. By contrast, where the five year survival rate for glioblastoma sits at fewer than 5%, and the average life expectancy after diagnosis is between just 12 and 18 months, government investment in research in the same time period sits at just £15 million. £6 million of which the all-party parliamentary group for brain tumours disputes as having not actually been spent on brain tumour research. And this may still sound like a large number, you know, several millions, but as a percentage of total research funding for all cancers, only 1% has been spent on brain tumours since 2002, and that's all types of brain tumours, not just glioblastoma. And as a consequence, there has not been any change to the standard of care since temozolomide, the chemotherapy drug used for glioblastoma, was introduced in, nearly 2005, in 2005, nearly 20 years ago. Um, to get my words in the right order. <laughs> and glioblastoma is now the deadliest cancer to adults and children aged under 40. But that was a lot of statistics. <laughs> And we are not just a statistic, and nor are we just glioblastoma patients. We are people. And one quote that's really stuck with me, you know, was 2018, shortly before her death from glioblastoma, Baroness Tessa Jow said, for what would every person want? First to know that the best, the latest science was being used, wherever in the world it was developed, whoever began it. And instead, in this country, people with glioblastoma are in large numbers starting GoFundMe pages to pay for treatments abroad, often costing between 100 to £150,000. And instead, Dr. Matt Williams says in the recently published Pathway to a Cure report, every week I have to tell patients that there is nothing more we can offer. I have now been a consultant for 10 years and those conversations are the same now as when I started. But Baroness Zhao also said that she had such great hope, and we do, we have a world-class health system, we have world-class academic institutions, and I'm hoping that Jamie might be able to tell us what research he's working on and why we can be hopeful. And I also didn't finish my story to answer the question that I was actually asked. So I had six weeks of radio and chemotherapy followed by six more rounds of chemo on a roughly monthly cycle uh, which is the standard of care for glioblastoma. I finished my treatment now nearly a year ago and just last week I received my fifth no evidence of disease scan result. Four days ago I celebrated 19 months since my diagnosis and I like to think that the fact that that's still not the end of my story can also give us a bit of hope.
2: Um, did they go through any research, clinical trials with you at that point?
3: No, the sort of message that I was given at that point, it was one of the only questions that I was emotionally able to ask <laughs> at the point of my diagnosis. And the message that I was given was, no, there's nothing at the moment and you wouldn't be eligible anyway. And the understanding that I kind of have gotten since is that the sort of research that does exist is mostly around recurrence rather than initial kind of diagnosis. So um, I don't know whether that's true, um, but the answer is no. And that seems to be the kind of common story that i've certainly heard in the from kind of the brain tumor community so to speak
1: jesse how how did you find out all the statistics and information on your
3: diagnosis so when i was first diagnosed it was awful you know those statistics are what you find when you google glioblastoma and i remember sitting and I think all of my family did sitting looking for some sort of positive story and I joined a sort of Facebook community um of that was called glioblastoma survivors to thriving which I had to leave very swiftly because I kind of realized that no one was surviving and no one was thriving on that page um and so now I feel that I am living the story that I needed to see that it was possible you know I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day etc etc but right now this is my life and I live a very normal life and I needed to know that that was possible that you could manage a, not just a cancer diagnosis but a glioblastoma diagnosis in the way that somebody might manage say another incurable illness like asthma <laughs> you know, which we forget is also an incurable and potentially deadly illness. You can live your life like that. So I feel very passionate about getting my story out there because the awful sides of glioblastoma definitely need to be out there for political reasons and, you know, to get the attention to such a kind of, uh, you know, a cancer with such poor outcomes But also for patients and also for professionals, again, as I understand it, um, not just researchers, but also oncologists don't really like to work on brain tumours and particularly on glioblastoma because the outcomes are so bad. Why would you? Um, I wouldn't have chosen this, but I didn't have a choice. So if I did, why would I choose to then go and work on something so awful? Um, So I feel really kind of passionate about getting that story out there, and in terms of the kind of second part of your question about why researchers should listen to it, for, I guess for the same reason, and also for the reason that at some point, breast cancer, leukemia, prostate cancers, cancers where there's been serious investment and serious research that has seen significant improvement in the kind of survival statistics we can make change. It might be hard, but that doesn't mean that we should, to borrow another set of Tessa Jow's words, be put in the too difficult box. And also because people have stories to tell, you know, not everyone wants to tell tell them, but they certainly should be given the opportunity to. And when I was first diagnosed, one of my biggest fears that would have me sobbing at two o'clock in the morning was that, you know, I'm 25 now. I was tw- just turned 24 when I, got when I was diagnosed. You know, I my biggest fear was that I hadn't had a chance to leave my mark on the world. And to give people that chance to be heard, be it on a big platform like this, and thank you, all of you, <laughs> for giving me that opportunity. But even just being able to have spoken to you on the kind of radiotherapy unit um, at the hospital I was treated at that was also an opportunity to kind of be heard I suppose and so for researchers to have the opportunity to let people contribute. Jamie what made you want to be a cancer researcher?
4: Yeah so it's been really inspiring um, getting to to hear Jessie's story and getting to to chat with her over the last um, several months, and I think it's it's really important to um, to hear patients' perspectives in trying to um, inform our research what we should be working on, how we should be doing it, and like Jessie very eloquently put, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism in the the sense that we know as a human ingenuity is is capable of creating these amazing advances as long as we put resources um, towards them Um, and so especially in the in the biomedical field we know what the answer is to making progress against against these diseases it's it's doing the doing the research and it's doing enough of the research and also often in these areas we don't know exactly where the breakthroughs are going to come from so as well as Doing um, putting a lot of resource into making sure we're, we're doing enough, it's also doing a diverse enough range of different research activities and coming at the problem from enough different angles. And we know m- not all of them are going to work, probably most of them are not going to work. But as long as we're doing enough and trying enough different approaches, then then eventually we're going to have something that um, that works well and improves outcomes for um, for patients and I think it's yeah like I say very inspiring to um, think about Jessie's viewpoint on her, her experiences and 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 her positivity and how I think yeah like like she says I think we have reason for positivity because we know what needs to be done it's just a case of um, trying to Trying to get everyone on board and direct all the the resources towards doing it, um, and so also yeah I encourage other researchers and and also healthcare professionals to to work on these areas which have been more neglected because um, yeah the only way we're going to make progress is by by having more people and people from different perspectives um, working on these things. Um, so that's a kind of overarching point. I like guess a bit more um specifically, um, so the the research um, we do in in my lab kind of spans the the translational um, spectrum from some quite fundamental um, biology of radiotherapy resistance, through to um, trying to um, optimize the way we administer radiotherapy with novel therapies, and then also um, studying um, patient data to try and um, make new new insights, which will hopefully generate knowledge to develop better treatments in the future. And I think in, in all of those aspects of our work, it's really beneficial to get um, the patient perspective. Um, I think from the clinical stuff that's more towards the clinical trials end of things, I think it's um, becoming much more appreciated the, the value of having patients in terms of making sure that trial eligibility criteria uh, are broad enough, and making sure that the trial outcomes are, are relevant to what patients care about. I think that's really important. And thankfully, I think we're seeing more and more involvement of, of patients in, um, in research, especially clinical research. But I'd say it's also equally as important to have patients involved in, in um, research that's further away from from the clinic, but will eventually end up in the clinic. So for example, are the, the preclinical model systems we're using to, to test new therapies in the lab, are they representative of all patients or are they just representative of some, some subset of patients? And so something that's uh, really kind of hit home for me through um, doing a, a few different um, patient involvement and engagement initiatives is that really the, the, the patients are another set of experts who'd, who provide really vital and valuable insights and um, and as researchers we should be including them as much as possible and um, incorporating their their expert opinions and making sure that, that their voice isn't, isn't lost in the, the process. Jamie, why are you so passionate about cancer research? Um, so I guess to give a bit of, a bit of background, so I came at, came into cancer research from slightly left, left field. Um, and so I originally, um, did my training in physics and, um, and I think at, at school I enjoyed all the sciences, but I, I guess I was more interested in Understanding um, kind of general principles uh, about the world, which seemed to be more what school math and physics was teaching rather than the biology, I thought it was interesting, but it was a lot of learning facts which I was less less keen on so I kind of I toyed with the idea of um, doing doing medicine but ended up um, studying uh, studying physics, but then both my parents worked in healthcare, so I guess I was always um aware of and interested in the the healthcare field and the importance of um, healthcare and I'd also done some, um, during my degree I did some work experience in medical physics and actually in school I think I also did some work experience in medical physics so it's a bit of a a a bit of an unknown profession but um, I'd kind of been a little bit aware of it Um, um, and so when I got to the end of my physics degree I was really keen. I wanted to use my knowledge to try and do something that was beneficial for society in some, some small way. And so, um, and so, cause I'd enjoyed my work experience in medical physics as well, I decided to pursue that route. So I started training, um, as a medical physicist through the NHS clinical scientist training scheme. And I did that for a couple of years, so I worked in, um, a, cu- a couple of different radiotherapy and medical imaging departments at the Royal Marsden Hospital and St George's, and uh, there I was lucky enough to to get to learn from lots of um, very patient and, and talented therapeutic radiographers as part of my radiotherapy training, um, and then after I'd completed the first two years of the training program, uh, I decided to take some time out to do a PhD because, um, yeah, it was it was clear to me at that point that although. Radiotherapy is, is highly effective in, in lots of situations and it's very sophisticated um, treatment modality and the way it's administered now um, has really led to some great improvements. There's still, unfortunately, a lot of situations where I think there's a lot of room for, for further improvement. And so I felt like the way that I could make a, or try and make a contribution was through trying to uh, explore going down a, a research route in order to improve the way that things were um, being done currently. And so I did my my PhD, which was on um, trying to um, predict toxicity resulting from head and neck radiotherapy and understand how we might be able to, to reduce toxicity through uh, altering the radiotherapy treatment planning. Um, um, but in doing that, I was able to um, leverage my background in the, the quantitative sciences. and um, So there I was using um, a lot of machine learning uh, methods to analyse radiotherapy treatment data. And I really enjoyed that multidisciplinary um, working and bringing uh, approaches from different, different fields together. And so when I initially started my PhD, I was thinking I would either go down, the, continue down the research route or or go back and complete my um, clinical scientist training. But having, a, having done the, the research and, and really loving it, I decided that was definitely the, the route where I was gonna be able to um, contribute more and, and um, enjoy the work I was doing. Um, and then so after my PhD, I went um, over to the US to do a um, postdoctoral training fellowship um, in a lab, which again, took a very multidisciplinary approach. So they do um, mathematical modelling of of cancer evolution and treatment resistance. And, and they did a lot of work on using those mathematical models to optimise treatment administration schedules. And so during my PhD, um, actually attended one of the astro courses quite early on in my PhD, which was um, on the the biology of um, radiotherapy. And and that was really the first time I'd studied any biology since I was um, 16 and so so when I learned about all these new drugs which were being combined with radiotherapy, I thought that was that was um, really cool research really interesting. but then I, when I learned about how those drugs were actually being com- combined, I thought there was uh, a lot of stuff that wasn't wasn't really being considered and perhaps like, someone like me as an outsider coming in with a slightly different perspective i thought oh we could uh, use some approaches from the physical sciences and use them to try and solve the way we solve this problem which is how can we best combine novel drugs with radiotherapy um, and so and so based on that um yeah i went to do my postdoctoral training um, um, with this lab in boston um where they've done uh, quite a lot of work on on drug resistance and not so much on radiotherapy. Um, so I did um, some work trying to optimise radiotherapy treatment administration schedules. Um, and so some of that uh, work involved um, doing a, a clinical, or designing a clinical trial um, f- of an optimised radiotherapy schedule for um, patients with recurrent glioblastoma who were receiving uh, reirradiation. Um, and then also some, um, some ongoing work on, um, how to best combine DNA damage response inhibitors with, um, radiotherapy also for, for patients with glioblastoma. Um, and then, um, I also ended up getting involved in, um, some more fundamental biology of radiation response and trying to understand, um, particularly non genetic resistance mechanisms, and how we can, how we can, again, use approaches from maths and physics to make new insights into the biology of, of treatment resistance, which will hopefully lead to new treatment approaches in, in the future. Um, but yeah, so I guess in some kind of summary, I think, I, cancer research is such a, an important field as a whole um because um because of the the effects of cancer on on so many of us and and it's only only increasing especially in the the de- um developing worlds as well and so there's a huge societal need for for improvements um and and in terms of my own kind of little, little niche within this this huge area of research I I really enjoy being able to kind of come in as a bit of an outsider with a slightly different way of uh, looking at looking at problems. And, and yeah, I really enjoy taking kind of translating approaches between different different fields. So something that's um, worked really well in in physics and taking it over to, to biology and medicine and seeing whether we can use those kind of approaches to make make progress then. And yeah, I guess that links back to my earlier Point, which is I think we really, we really do need people with lots of different backgrounds and lots of different perspectives um, working in, in cancer research. And I think as a field, it's, it's definitely moving more in, in that direction. So, so as biology and medicine gets, the data get more and more quantitative, I think there's more and more, uh, people recognise more and more the need for, for people who are experts in, in analysing data and doing theoretical modelling, so so for me personally it's an exciting time to work in, in cancer research from that perspective as well.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about the project?
4: So so this project which is funded by the UCL Beaconversary um, scheme is really, um, the, the idea behind the project is to bring together researchers who work in radiotherapy with young people who've um, received radiotherapy as part of their their cancer treatment and and to have um, conversations which provide the, the kind of valuable um, valuable insights that are, that are needed from um, from the researchers getting to Hear the expertise of the patients from from their experiences and and their views, and also um, hopefully share with um, share with patients um, the the kind of research that that we're doing, and to show that we are trying to um, trying to make progress, and that and that we really value their their input in in trying to do our work in the in the best way possible and and so we'd done a similar project previously which had been as part of the CIUK City of London radnet Center where we'd had um, these these conversations um, amongst ourselves and off off the back of that uh, we felt it'd be really valuable to uh, kind of have these conversations more more in the open um, as well, and so it's been really fantastic getting to to team up with with yourselves and the the rad chat podcast to be able to um, to yeah open up these conversations to the the wider um, radiotherapy and healthcare um, communities and hopefully um, hopefully get get people thinking about um, some of these things and and encourage other people out there. Um, on who are working in healthcare or in biomedical research, to to s- have more conversations with with patients and um, and show them that that their expertise and their input really um, really is important, and there's only I think only gains to be had from from having these conversations. Um, so so yeah, this is all quite uh, all quite new, but. Yeah, we're very excited in the the direction it's um, it's all going and yeah I'm very interested in in general about how we can can really do better public and patient involvement and, and engagement I think now there's recognition that that's important which is great but a lot of it's still very very new and I'm sure there's um, a lot of room to to improve how it's done so and again I think having these kind of conversations with, with Jessie over the last few months has been has been um, really, really great. And she's so eloquent and so insightful. And I think, yeah, not only do we have a lot to learn in terms of our how we can um, do better research by improving, by including the patient perspective, but also how we can improve the way we, we do public and patient involvement and engagement in, in research as well. Um, and so we've got a, a series of conversations between um, researchers in, in radiotherapy who are based at UCL, and, and young adults who've received radiotherapy as part of their treatment. And so, uh, yes, yeah, it's uh, been a, a real pleasure to, to get to chat to um, everyone involved so far. And I'm really excited to, to hear all the other conversations that happen as part of the other um, podcasts. Jesse, what are you hoping to get
2: out of being part of this so this must be very different as a young person as well coming into a research field as you said from civil service background
3: yes and I think for me it's on the one hand in terms of what I sort of want to get personally and you know I think like I was saying how bleak the statistics are and also like not just the kind of survival statistics but also the um you know number of glioblastoma but also just generally brain tumor patients who are involved in treatment and i think just uh, not in treatment in yeah who are involved in research be it clinical research or other kind of research at different parts of the kind of research pathway, so to speak, Um, and being able to kind of listen to Jamie talk and understand that there is a bit of hope. Um, And also one thing I feel quite passionately about, you know, I think it's only 5% of brain tumor patients and that's across all brain tumors, not just glioblastomas are entering a very limited number of trials um, and I worry that we focus so much on the hunt for a cure that we forget that living and cancer are not mutually exclusive things and I worry that by putting finding a cure for glioblastoma in this too difficult box we risk people's lives and the quality of those lives not just next year and the year after but also in the next 10, 20, 30 years and that small percentage of patients going into cr- into clinical trials, not all of the research, and Jamie has very eloquently um, highlighted, the kind of cross-disciplinary approaches to research and also the fact that a lot of research is not just specific. That's not just that there are very few brain tumour related trials. It's also about the eligibility of brain tumour patients to general trials that will have kind of patients from across spectrum of different cancers and so if you have such a small number of brain tumor patients going into those trials this means that the potential benefits of novel treatments being used to treat other cancers are not being identified as also beneficial to people with glioblastoma and other brain cancers And as I understand it, one of the primary reasons why glioblastoma patients do not participate in trials, and Jamie touched on this a little bit earlier, um, is due to disabilities emerging from neurological damage caused by the cancer and the treatment. And so they are not allowed to. The eligibility criteria does not encompass them. And Jamie can correct me if I'm wrong but my assumption therefore is that more attention being given to improving patients' quality of life as well as in the search for a cure could as well as providing the obvious benefits to them and their loved ones also help to move us towards a cure and i think trying to sort of you know be involved in the conversations with people like jamie who are conducting research to understand what is actually happening <laughs> for my for myself But also to be able to have those conversations, to share my experience so that Jamie can not just reflect that in his work, but also to his colleagues and people who he sees regularly. Um, And it's obviously led me to be able to do something like this, where hopefully, you know, we'll reach a much wider cross spectrum of people in kind of radiography other cancer patients and potentially other researchers um so hopefully to kind of spread some of that message wide more widely um, about different approaches to research and different approaches to patient engagement for glioblastoma but also for lots of different types of cancer treatments and making them as inclusive as possible
4: completely completely agree um and yeah like like you say i think there's um yeah there's it's kind of a, a bit of a vicious circle because, in order to make progress, one of the things we have to, to be able to do is is um, test out novel um, approaches in, in patients, or or even perform novel measurements on how patients respond to, to standard um, treatments, and we need to be able to run clinical trials in in patients to be able to to do that, and so. By, by having fewer, fewer patients than we should in enrolling in clinical trials, either because um, there's, there's not enough preclinical research being done in, in the space, and so there's not enough trials, or because the, not enough thought has been given to the eligibility criteria, or they're too, too restrictive, um, and they don't tell us enough about a lot of the patients that that get treated on a day to day basis that, that aren't eligible for, um, for um, for trials, or because because of um, concerns around um, around um, side effects, um, it it means that for, for those and a whole combination of other reasons, there aren't there aren't enough patients in trials, which means we can't learn enough about how how patients are responding to treatments which hampers our ability to to come up with with new and new and better treatments and um and
2: sounds a bit like a vicious cycle though
4: exactly yeah yeah and so i think it's really important to to start to to make improvements in patient access to trials because that's going to help the whole the whole research landscape in general and and of course there are things we have to be we have to be cautious about. We have to make sure the design of trials is is robust, so that we get high level evidence from them. We have to, we have to um, um, be careful about, um, um toxicities. Um, we have to be aware of the fact that it's often very hard to get drugs into into brain tumours because of the blood brain barrier. But I think even with those things said, I think there's there's still a lot we can do to improve. Um, patients access to trials because, from from reading the studies in this space, and and from speaking with patients, there's a real desire for, for a lot of patients to to want to get involved in clinical trials, and so we should really try to, to, improve access massively for everyone's everyone's sake.
1: How are you now, Jesse? After your treatment, um, have you got any side effects?
3: There are so many different ways I could answer this, so I'm going to try and structure my answer a little bit. So there's the kind of first part, you know, the initial diagnosis period and what that sort of does to you, being told that in 18 months' time, you, a 24-year-old who's only recently left university, who's just sort of, you know, moved in with your girlfriend of you know four years um honestly we had uh, having been together for a long time long distance we just moved in together I mean like we'd been living together for about a month (laughs) you know you're just starting your career everything's just kicking off but you should be dead in 18 months time to put it bluntly and I apologize to anyone who that is triggering for but it's a very very hard thing to be told and at first, I, I couldn't live and, you know, now in the time since my diagnosis, I've taken out a 35 year mortgage, gotten engaged to my girlfriend, been on two holidays of a lifetime, which is poor phrasing, <laughs> perhaps, um, progressed in my career. And those are the big things. Most of all, I just live a normal life. People expect you to live in this world of extremes. Either you're imminently dying and too unwell to have any kind of quality of life, or you're better and your life is perceived as just one big bucket list, one bucket list activity after another. And the thing that I grieved most when I was diagnosed was being normal, going to the pub and complaining about work, Staying at home and unwinding with a bit of telly and everything in between. I couldn't do any of that. I, you know, would sit in the... Try, I would try and go to the pub and have to lock myself in the loo and just sob. Um, Couldn't watch telly. And now I do all of it. And so that kind of getting from that initial diagnosis phase to now is you know the strategies that I use now and the strategies that I used then are very different and I think the first thing for me was um, I listened I was just very angry (laughs) I was so angry you know I was very upset as well but I was really really angry and so I sort of listened I really got I've always loved jazz um, but I started listening to American civil rights jazz from you know the sort of 60s in particular because the anger spoke to me um and Nina Simone wrote a song called Mississippi goddamn and i've had my share of kind of health issues over the years but all of them been really stupid and mostly my own fault up until this and i called you know the, the song Mississippi Goddamn lists all of the atrocities committed um, against African, the African American community. Um, and then Nina Simone gets to the Mississippi um, kind of tragedy that I have forgotten the year of, but it was sometime in the 60s. And she says, But Mississippi Goddamn. <laughs> and, you know, this is one step too far. And I called my brain tumour My Mississippi Goddamn. Uh, You know, broken fingers, broken back, ovarian cyst, but a brain tumour, Mississippi goddamn. And then I sort of took from that, I learned something from all of the, you know, music that I was listening to at the time, which was a kind of pride, a sort of defiance. And Nina Simone wrote a song called I Ain't Got No, I Got Life. And that, for me, was almost, you know, listening to that song was almost a bit of a turning point. She lists all the things that she doesn't have. But then she says, but what have I got? And, you know, I think it's, I've got my hair, got my head, got my teeth, got my feet. And it kind of goes through all the body parts and says, I've got my smile. I've got life. And that was a real reminder for me. I am still alive. And until I'm not anymore, I am still alive. And so I'm going to live my life. And it just clicked something in my brain where I was like, my fear of death, my anger, my grief of a life that doesn't exist anymore, and is meaning that actually I've lost everything. But there is no reason at this point why I've lost those things. I can still do them if I want to and so I did and once I started doing them it kind of got easier over time and now it's it's this weird thing where sometimes I can almost forget and then you have things that remind you like my the scan last week was looming and all of a sudden everyone in my family goes a bit mad (laughs) we all kind of get really tetchy we all are Sort of texting each other saying, I've just had a cry in the lose at work. And, you know, we're suddenly like, oh, yeah, the scan's in a month's time. That's why. And it becomes really triggering and it takes you back to a time. But it's so strange because it feels like that was so long ago. And to be honest, one of the biggest things that I do now is I try to talk about it because it reminds me not just what, you know, happened. And that that is still, you know, a sort of serious part of my life. But also it reminds me of what kind of hasn't happened and therefore what could happen. Um, And, you know, realism, I'm realistic about my outlook, I suppose, statistically speaking. But realism and pessimism aren't the same thing. And I have no reason right now to think that I can't sort of plan for a future And so I do. And I may not get to live that future. I know that I'm realistic about that, but that doesn't mean that there isn't value in doing it, in doing that now Um, and planning for it now. And from that, I've just got so much enjoyment. And there are things that I planned that felt insane to plan at the time that I have now done. And even if I hadn't been able to do them, you know, I'm planning a wedding at the moment and I've got such a clear picture of what that will look like. It may not happen, not just because I might die, but also because we might decide we actually don't like each other that much or, <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, and But there is still value in doing that. And so I think that for me was it, was, they, you know, until I have died, I am still alive. And so I'm going to live until I can't anymore be it in 18 months time or 80 years time we'll find out i don't know don't know when that's going to be and it could be actually bloody ages away in which case i've got a lot of time to kill i don't want to (laughs) be you know i need to think of things to fill it with
2: thank you so much for sharing i think it's a really nice way as we come towards the end of the podcast as well um i suppose we always like to end these episodes uh, with top tips. You've so both given lots of really interesting things to consider, but um, I suppose, Jamie, do you want to give some top tips first, and we can come to you afterwards, Jesse?
4: Sure. So, um, so I guess, um, for, for, well, because I started off in the, the NHS, NHS at least very briefly before going into, to research and maybe, just um. I would encourage people working, working in the healthcare sector to, to maybe try out little pieces of research when you, if, and when you get the opportunity to, and explore that as a, a potential, um, um, potential path because we need people who have expertise in the, the healthcare sector to go into research in order to make, make progress. And, um, and at the moment, um, well, whilst we could always have, have more, I'd say there are people with a medical background working in research, which is great, but it would also be, I think, good to increase the number of people from other professions within healthcare going into research, because, um, yeah, we need to um, get those people with their their expertise from their, um, their clinical work into research, because they understand, like uniquely understand some of the, the areas where improvement can be made or, or have have insights. Um, so I'd say, yeah, at least have a, have a think about where the research might be, might be for you and give it, give it a go and see if you like it. Um, and then to, I would say to, um, to any, any researchers who, who don't come into contact, um, with patients on a, um, on a regular basis, I would definitely encourage encourage you to to um, explore opportunities to to get to have conversations with with patients. Um, I think when early on in my career, um, I incorrectly assumed that um, that working with um, working with doctors would give me all the information I would need to know about, about what we need to do to improve things for, for patients and, um, and yeah, the the more I've worked in research, um, the, the more I've realized how naive that uh, that initial um, view was and how, um how. Patients are just as much experts as doctors are. They've just got different different set of expertise. So I'd encourage, people who who don't routinely get to interact with patients to um, to, uh, interact with um with, patients. I think it can only only lead to good things. Hopefully, and then also in case there's anyone listening who works on more um, um, fundamental biomedical um, research, I think it's important not just to think about how we can better design clinical studies um, to um, to benefit patients in the best way, but how can we also design our preclinical studies in such a way that they'll eventually benefit benefit all patients and that no one kind of gets left behind because they aren't represented in in research thank you jesse
3: so i'll start with a bit of advice for professionals which won't be too different from what jamie's already sort of covered there but improving outcomes for cancer patients is not entirely about politics Um, it is about people and the community of carers who love and support them And it is also not just about money, albeit the statistics that I reeled off earlier are shocking. Um, It is about the power of kindness, I suppose. And to borrow um, the slogan from a British Red Cross campaign in the 2010s um, about refugees coming to the UK, we need to look beyond the label. Your patients and their carers are also parents, grandparents, siblings, friends, colleagues, professionals people and never underestimate the impact you can have on them just by being with them whether it be at the best or worst moments of their lives and just by being kind I loved going to radiotherapy my the radiographers that I worked with or who worked with me I wasn't working um, were superb and it was such a nice space and I wasn't working and so it was the only way that I kind of got to go out because my chemotherapy was very lonely. It was oral tablets I took at home. And it was, I, used, I as I would used to say, I love radiotherapy. Everyone should have it. Um, but also never underestimate what your patients and their loved ones can give you. And I firmly believe in the power of human connection. don't know if you've noticed but i'm a talker um i will talk to anyone about anything anywhere in the world that we happen to be and like i said earlier we have stories to tell and messages that you could learn from so listen and give us a chance to tell them and if we don't want to we won't (laughs) Um, and to my patients there are no words to my fellow patients not my patients there are no words to describe just how awful this is and what it brings out in us i was awful when i was first diagnosed um horrible to be around um and like i said you know listening to jazz there and and there's a version of that for everyone it doesn't have to be jazz maybe you're really into grime um or maybe you hate music and you're really into film but find your thing um and you know like I said right now I'm still alive and if you're listening to this then so are you and <laughs> um, so albeit maybe a bit bored of the sound of me droning on um, but as my grandma would say keep buggering on
2: yeah thank you so much both of you for coming on and sharing and talking about research and obviously your experience as well Jesse um, So yeah thank you very much so thank you all for listening to Radchat. Your hosts today have been Naman Joe and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form link to the podcast. So we've also posted a link to an evaluation for this episode in the show notes. It would be really helpful for this project if you could take the time to fill it out. Thank you for listening and take care.